This is Fred Schenkelberg, and today I'm talking about something that's not in particular a reliability tool or activity, but it is a pretty handy tool for reliability work, and we'll use a couple of examples to illustrate that. And so there's a, a few things we can get involved with uh, in the overall process of, of doing reliability engineering. And as you know, many of us have a wide range of tools that we use on a regular basis in order to do better analysis. And Monte Carlo is one of those methods or techniques that allows us to extract quite a bit of useful information out of the data that we have available. And well, I could go on and on about types of data, but let me let me actually move the slides ahead a little bit so you see if we can make that work. And so one of the things, and for the, many of you I've seen before, and lots of repeat uh, listeners or attendees to the webinar, and I appreciate you coming back, is that you've heard me talk about variation and uh, not just standard deviation and variance, but that, that the real world has a lot of variation. Uh, we don't have the same um, uh, temperature every day. We don't have the same operating conditions all the time. We don't have the same set of raw materials uh, for every product that we make. We have stuff that varies and we have to be able to do with that. And so it's one of those things that uh, we need a, a wide range of tools in order to deal with it. And, and Monte Carlo is one of those tools. Now, in, in essence, it's a modeling tool because at the heart of it is a model, a mathematical model or representation that helps us convert a range of inputs into a, a numerical output that allows us then to, if nothing else, to create a histogram uh, of, of a range of results that we're getting. And, and that in and of itself can be really, really useful. And it can be relatively simple. Uh, or it can be amazingly complex. The, the, the tool is actually pretty um, uh, um, flexible, I guess is the right word. And I just hear, let's say I got Jay with no sound and Yvette with, with sound. Um, uh, not sure what the audio issues are. It's showing good on this side and it sounds like or it seems like a few are, are able to get in just fine. Um, yeah, let me see if there's any other signals I'm getting that could be a problem. Yeah. So for those with sound issues, and that's about the only thing I know how to do to make that work. Um, so anyway, on with the uh, show. Hopefully it's not too many people are having problems. So the intent of modeling, uh, whether with Monte Carlo or with any other set of tools or, or approach that we can take, is the, is the, the approach is to 
to gain insights, to, to learn something, to enable us to either answer a specific question or allow us to ask better questions. And, and those are, you know, that's why we take a look at gathering data. That's why we analyze it and create some information out of it is really to help us understand the world around us a bit better in, in a big picture way, in a reliability engineering way, we're often either trying to create a robust or reliable product and or we're trying to um, manufacture or create a, a product that is able to last a long time for the range of customers that we have and wherever they are and however they use our product within reason, I should say. But the idea is, is that we're, we're trying to use the information we have available and we have to answer questions to, to get in. I think just as importantly is to allow us to ask better questions. And so um, two examples that I've used a, a, a Monte Carlo method with is one is with tolerance analysis. And we have a simple example to kind of show the process uh, for that today. And then also in product life estimation, I was fortunate enough to be involved in a, in a project uh, almost 20 years ago. And I ran into a couple of engineers at a conference last year that um, said that that model that uh, we started so long ago is using Monte Carlo approach is still being used and it's being used in, in a very creative way. And we'll talk about that um, in some detail also. So those are just two ways to do it. Now, if you search for Monte Carlo method and you'll find dozens and dozens and dozens of other applications that are available out there. So there's lots of ways to use this tool and knowing about it and being able to use it is a pretty helpful or handy uh, for your toolbox. All right. So let's define it a little bit. You know, just what is this Monte Carlo method? Is it doesn't involve a trip to the south of uh, France um, or to a casino anywhere. Yet it does allow us to deal with. Um, with uh, it does allow us to deal with the. Uh, variability that exists in our world and allows us to use that data in a more accurate way than otherwise. And let me, so a, a, the Monte Carlo method um, uh, is an approach, essentially, and it basically takes input data uh, variables, say temperature, like last month we talked about weather data and how to gather that data and use it. That, and it's a pretty handy way to describe to the weather is, you know, that we have our readings, temperature readings available to us, and it allows us then to um, use that information to estimate the life of our product or its exposure to a particular stress. And if we know how our materials or the product will respond to, say, below freezing temperatures, we can use that weather data uh, because there's only proportional times or select times that it's exposed. And we can then say, well, what, what percentage of our products are expected to see this below freezing temperatures? And 
a simple question like that we can answer with some weather data and don't really even need a transfer function. But if we know that it, it ages at different rates for different temperatures, say according to some Arrhenius rate equation, we may be able to use that equation to input the variation in temperatures that our product sees to see what its effect is on its lifetime or on its performance. And we use a, a transfer function, some function or formula that it takes as an input temperature and outputs a time to failure or uh, a change in its performance or some other function uh, that we can calculate. And there's lots of ways that that, that can be used and we'll definitely we'll get into some examples of that here in a minute. I've been trying to, I'm waving my hand in front of the screen here in front of the microphone um, when I actually do have a, a drawing of, of this concept. And let me find my, my pen here. So this is a different concept than worst case, right? In worst case, you take your variables and you say, well, what's my, um, you know, what's the highest temperature? and what's the the weakest material and so on and i put that into some function and i get a result and it only gives me the extremes and you can do some fancy stuff by taking not quite the total extreme but some other extreme but it generally takes the worst case you know your your customer that it is the most abusive environment for your product and you end up designing for the worst case, which in some cases affects the price for everybody else and or its performance for everybody else. So, and sometimes it just doesn't make sense to go there. So then sometimes we use a, a what's called a, a root sum squared or root mean squared uh, approach. And there we're assuming that all of our distributions are now normally distributed, right? And that's not always true, but we, we make either transform the data or we do a number of shenanigans and, and assumptions to make them all normal-ish or normal enough, we put that into a transfer function into some inputs and then we can run the calculations up and we get some nice results. It's better than a worst case, yet it's not as accurate as a lot of the data that we have available. And so what the Monte Carlo does is say, well, if you have skewed data or log normal data or libel data or normal data or even discrete data right you might have uh, three different regions that you're shipping your product to and they have different use cases for those reason regions you have you can input the discrete data by region for example and then how that that information gets used in a transfer function the formula and it could be as simple as just an Arrhenius equation or it could be a collection of many equations or it could be like a Cox proportional hazards model or a, a tolerance stack up set of calculations it could be a wide range of things that go into that function the key concept though of Monte Carlo is that you can use a wide range of types of distributions as input for the variables into the function. And what you get out of it then, and you basically the concept is, is that you randomly select 
one piece from here, uh, one piece from here, one piece from here as inputs, run the function, that's one iteration, and then do it again. Grab another random sample from your populations, or I'm sorry, from your, your data sets, your input variables, and that becomes the second point, and so on. And you do that over and over again. In many cases, it's thousands of times, and you end up with basically a histogram or a distribution of output results. Right? Now, if they're all normal to start with, you'll get a normal curve out of the end. If they're not all normal, you'll get a distribution. It may or may not be normally distributed, which is fine, but it gives you a representation of tens of thousands of combinations of the variables that you're interested in. Now, you can get real fancy and set up all kinds of rules about how these things are selected and they could be conditional and all kinds of uh, fancy tools that go into that. But the heart of it is, is that you're randomly sampling from your input variables, running the calculation, getting more samples, running the calculation. And you just do it over and over again until you have enough data to give you a representation of the uh, of the say, a million products going out around the world in different use conditions. It's one case that I actually worked on. Another is that it might be a tolerance stack up. And so we know that we're going to create these uh, products using a range of different components that each have their range of variability. And how does it going to pan out? How how many times are we going to have all bad components or the worst case components such that we have a, a yield issue? We can run those calculations. But we also can use that model to, to optimize the design and do what if analysis and do all kinds of decision making on it. And so it's a, it's a pretty simple concept. Um, it really became available as we um, got more and more computing power, right? It's a simulation. What we're basically doing is saying, we're, if we have a transfer function, this, this formula that describes the, uh, uh, the mixture of inputs to our some calculation, whether it's a tolerance stack up or if it's a time to failure uh, estimate, say, using some, some formulas for each of those kinds of situations, we can virtually create products and using specific dimension parts, for example, that are randomly selected from the range of potentials or, or variables uh, that they actually have, and we virtually create them and add up their tolerance, stack up, and put that into a histogram, essentially. And we do it over and over again so that we get a pretty good representation of all of the possibilities and the most likely possibilities uh, in that particular example. This may make more sense as I, as I get into a, a, a more detailed example. The biggest benefit is, is that it uses the data that's usually the best available that we have. Now, it's a flexible enough tool that you can use engineering guesses, right? So if you've got a situation where you don't really know what the variability of, say, some component is, and it, it's, say, it's a, get my drawing tool up here. 
we're on some line here and, and there's it's got a range of resistivity. Um, I think that's rho, might be a good re representation of that. Uh, but we don't really know what that, we, haven't, we don't have the components, we're not making measurements, we don't have real data, but our specification uh, or the, the data sheet says it's from, a, say, uh, five ohms to seven ohms, right? Something like that. Now, we don't really know what they're shipping us. If they're shipping us a nice normal distribution in the middle of this, or if they've separated out the middle ones to, to sell at a different market or, or what, we could be very conservative and say, well, we'll do a, a uniform distribution within that group. Or we could say, well, we don't know if it's normal or not, but we think it's centered, right? We have some evidence that says it's centered. So we could do a triangle distribution. And these are just engineering guesses. Now, as you get better and better data, you may actually do measurements and find that it's bimodal, that the vendor really is slicing out a big chunk of it and get selling it somewhere else. And then they are outside of spec on occasion. Or maybe their distribution is truncated, right? They're, here's your spec limits, and maybe it's truncated or, or very uh, cut off. Instead of this part, they filter those out and, and get rid of them, and you get a truncated normal distribution. But until you get data, you just don't know. And you can use a range of different kinds of assumptions uh, in order to get some input into a, a Monte Carlo study. So lots and lots of flexibility. It's also pretty quick. Once you get it up and running, and, come, and the hardest part is, is, well, I should say there's two parts that are hard. Hard is what's the function? What's the calculation you're going to do? Sometimes it's pretty obvious, and sometimes it's pretty complex. Uh, but once you get that, then it's it's working on getting the best available data or inputs. And, and then at that point, then it becomes a pretty simple process. It's even easy to explain to other people, despite my struggling at the moment. So that's the basic idea. I, I, I suspect some of you have used Monte Carlo or have seen it. So what kind of applications um, you know, is, is working for you? What kind of applications could this be used in? And I mentioned too, the tolerance analysis and uh, life estimates. Yeah. Reliability, availability, maintenance modeling. I'm assuming that's what you st stands for there, Andar. Maintenance demand and functional availability, excellent for the space station. That's a pretty cool project, John. Yeah, I hope you don't have to use too many exponentials. Um, but yeah, use the you know use the types of distributions that are available that you have good evidence for whenever you can. Availability, uh, estimating confidence limits. Yeah, excellent, good one, Charlie. For life predictions, looks like we got a handful of folks that use this pretty well. Uh, Elena, excellent crack propagation. I know that there are 
a range of different formulas there, but there's so many variables that go into that, right? So that's excellent. Cash flow. Yeah, I, I know that Monte Carlo does a lot of stuff in the financial, the fintech world that's out there. Yeah, they use a lot of it there. Yeah. Simulate manufacturing line layout. Excellent, Andre. Yeah, all kinds of applications here. It is, like I said, a pretty flexible, versatile tool. And um, so it does, it's natural that it would find a lot of different applications. Cool. All right, let's go over just quickly what are the, the basic steps to doing this. And I've mentioned a bunch of these terms, so hopefully this put it in a little bit better um, uh, context for you. Okay. So I mentioned it earlier. Is the first one is to come up with that function or the like. In the Monte Carlo world, it's called a transfer function. It's transferring your inputs into a result. It's a formula, right? And it can range from a single formula to a whole collection of formulas. For example, in product life estimates, you may have, say, 20 or 30 uh, formulas that describe time to failure for different failure mechanisms. So think of physics of failure models, for example. And if your product has got a range of different ways it can fail, and they compete to see which one causes a failure first, and to a large degree may be um, related to how often it's used, or the humidity in the area where the person's using it, or, or other input variables, um, Monte Carlo is a great tool for seeing which of those many ways a product can fail actually wins for a particular circumstance, right? So, for example, well, let me, let me come back to that because it's uh, one of the examples I want to dive into a bit more. But the first part is really what is the transfer function? What is it that we're trying to calculate, right? In some cases, like for uh, tolerance analysis, <clears throat> the mechanical engineers in particular pretty much know what that formula is, and they may use worst-case analysis as a starting point to see if they've got a viable design. But when it gets a bit trickier, right, and the stack-up just is not going to allow you to create parts or your, your tolerances for specific components become so um, prohibitively tight that you may revert to a Monte Carlo approach, yet you need some just a, a way to calculate these uh, these variables. And so it's just a function. It's just a formula. It's the easy way to, to think of it. The next step is, well, given that formula, what are the variables, right? What do, what do we have available? Um, what, what do we know varies that we're going to input into this thing? So if I'm doing a tolerance analysis and I've got three components and each of those components have specifications, but remember, specifications are not, they're, I like to think of them as wishful thinking, right? They are not a representation of what you actually get. What you actually get is what you get, right? And so if they say it's a 10 ohm resistor, it, very, very few in that box are going to be exactly 10 ohms. And if the specification says between 9 and 11 ohms, 
Well, most will be between 9 and 11, somewhere. And so starting with the specifications, I always put a little asterisk on that saying, well, that's not data. That's a estimate, right? That's a promise from the vendor that they're going to give us those parts in that range. Ideally, we get a really good measurement system with minimal measurement error, and we measure a bunch of them and come up with actual, here's what we're receiving, here's what we're getting. Yet even there, it becomes prohibitive because different lots of materials or similar parts from different vendors may have completely different distributions of what they deliver to you. And so at some point, you guys say, I'm never going to have perfect data. So it's the best available data is where we usually go to. But it starts with just a list. So what are we trying to calculate? And if I'm doing tolerance analysis with a few parts, well, I need, well, how do those individual parts vary, right? And if I have it available, I'll go make measurements. If the vendor has that data available and they're willing to share it with us, let's get that distribution data. Um, if there's some other way we can get to it, let's get to it. And in worst case, you just make an estimate. Use a, a uniform distribution, for example, or a, a triangle distribution. Make it simple. But we need something that represents the variability of those inputs into the function. And, and so what we're looking for is what we can find is the essential part. And as you develop the model and, and start using it, you'll recognize that it's worth the time to get better data for some of your inputs. They have more influence, more um, uh, impact on the final result than other parts. And so focus on getting the data for the for the key variables that uh, have the biggest influence on the results is one way to think of it. Another step in this process is that, you, and I mentioned it briefly earlier, is that we're going to take a random sample from those inputs and run the calculation. And that's one run. That's one run of the simulation. If I only do it 10 times, I have a relatively small sample. And depending on how those random numbers were, you know, where they came from actually in that random sampling, um, I may get a, a, a skewed view of the overall results. If I run it 100,000 times, the, the, imp, the, the, the amount of change that occurs on the 100,000th and one run is so small in the 25th decimal point that I've got a pretty stable result. And so a few folks have sat down and said, well, for a given confidence, that's that Z sub alpha over two, um, say 95% confidence, and given the mean and uh, the standard error type terms, E sub R U is the standard error of the mean, um, we can estimate how many runs do we need to go to to get the precision and the confidence that we want? And, and so there's, um, I think it's in, well, I'll bring it up when we get, uh, when we wrap up, there's a downloads uh, section that had the slides in it. It also has, uh, it's in the links uh, tab. I'll have to bring that up a little bit later. 
um, that goes to a short free ebook that's on the Ascendo site that goes in detail about uh, estimating the number of runs. And there's other methods for doing this also. Right? And so the, the idea here is, is that we want to simulate, draw, draw random samples from our inputs enough times that we get a stable result that the, the input of one more variable or one more run doesn't really change it very much. And that's what we're talking about, it, it becomes consistent is, a, is another term for it. But the idea is, is that we can calculate that and then we use our computer systems either in Excel using something like um, um, Crystal Ball, which has been around for quite a while as an Excel add-on uh, for doing uh, Monte Carlo. There's a handful of tools. There's one tool that's actually built into like SolidWorks that allows you to do Monte Carlo simulation. Very handy for tolerance analysis. And you can use our software. And I'm sure there's many, many other packages out there that allows you to, to run these simulations. But it's usually in the thousands, if not tens of thousands of runs is a minimum, is what I've typically run into. More is better if you get the computing power and time. Uh, which compared to when I first did this was is less and less of a concern. Uh, our desktop computers can run thousands of, of iterations fairly quickly, depending on how complex your model is. And then, then you do the analysis. Once we do each run, we get a result, right? We get either a, a the tolerance stack up in what is our total dimension, given all the inputs we put into it, or What's the time to fail? Let's say we have 20 or 30 failure mechanisms. Well, which one caused it to fail and when? How long did it last before that electromigration actually caused the failure? And so then we have time to failure data, for example, and we can do a histogram. We could fit a distribution to it, like, like a viable distribution or the appropriate one. But then we can also start doing these calculations to say, well, in a life estimate, is the product is are enough of the products going to last long enough for this to be a viable product right what's our expected failure rate at different points in time we might be using that data to set a warranty policy for example or informing how many repairmen we need in the field to service our products and what kind of spare parts do they need what what's likely to cause problems can be used in a very sophisticated way to help you, as I've said earlier, ask better questions, right? It gives you a handle um, that, or a tool that allows you to probe and peek and, and prod your process in order to, to learn something. And, and that's what it's all about. All right, so let me pause there. I might've given this one away a little bit. What do you see is the hardest part in this process of setting one of these up? Okay, okay. 
Yeah. Getting the best distributions. Yeah. Time consuming. Well, Elena, I know that a little bit about that you do some pretty complex stuff. So I just heard about a new supercomputer that's a billion times faster than the Cray one. So you might want to get some time on that one. Um, there's always more computing power, it seems like. Yeah, building it in Excel, that can be time consuming because it's pretty tedious. It, at some point, it's worth buying either a plugin or learn enough about our software or some other package that takes the tedium out of building it. Um, I, I built a very small example. I think I had 25 iterations or 25 runs. Um, you know, once you get it started, it's cut and paste and and go. But it, when you're doing tens of thousands of runs, then it gets pretty um, tedious to do that. Yeah, so it's a mixture of, you know, kind of on your circumstance in distributions to use. If you don't have data, it makes it hard to trust the results if you're doing a lot of estimating and engineering judgment type stuff on it. Um, it, and tying that model back to real life, as you're pointing out there, Charlie, it's in the long run, it's a model, right? And what is it, George Cox or Box? One of those guys said, you know, all models are wrong, some are useful. One of the things is, is embrace that and get started. Try it, try it on something simple. Uh, you know, learn the ins and outs of using a tool like this and what works and what doesn't work, what kind of structure you need, and then improve the data, improve the model as you go, and then look for those opportunities to, to improve it. Um, the example for product life estimate that I mentioned earlier, they've been working on that for close to 20 years. And from what I understand, there's two full-time engineers that manage the, the, the code that runs the software. And they have all kinds of engineering engineers working on the physics of failure models for time to failure uh, distributions and estimates and calculations. I don't want to say too much because there's a bunch more into it. Yeah, small number of samples. Now, this is an aside, and maybe it's worth doing another uh, webinar on. Uh, back in my, day, in, in my college days in grad school, I learned about a, a a, an approach to deal with small sample sizes in order to get pretty reasonable estimates of standard deviation, which is often the hardest part when you have a small sample. Our, our, our classical way of calculating standard deviations tend to be very large when you have a small sample, and it's artificially large compared to what the population would be. But if we only have a small sample, that's what we have. It's called bootstrapping, and it's a technique of resampling that small sample, and it asymptotically approaches the population's standard deviation. It's a pretty slick technique. It's not hard to do if you've got a computer. Our software, I think, even has a whole package that makes it pretty straightforward. But it's one technique to look at if you really are hamstrung by small samples. It is a tool for, for doing that. Yeah, and I, I agree with the, what data do we get? What, what do we focus on? And I alluded to it a little bit earlier is that it's, it really is use what you need to have to start with, even if it's just flat out guesses, right? And then let the 
the model help you do a little bit of sensitivity analysis, change a few things and see what kind of out, uh, variation you get and let that guide you to where to prioritize getting better data. The other part is, is in those transfer functions is, do we have the right formula? Do we have the right set of equations to, to interpret the variability in our, even around our systems? And that can be a continuous improvement project in and of itself. But once a team gets a hold of one of these models, and it doesn't take all that very long to get started with this, it often finds a home because it allows people to, to understand how the variability in their uh, components selection, the variability in their use environment, the variability in the material sets they're using impacts the results they're interested in. And it does it in a way that we really don't have very many other tools that allow us to do that in, in such a robust and, and relatively quick manner. So it's why it finds so much uh, um, use in so many different tools. So let me step through a, a, a quick example here. Um, so this one's also in, and I should just pull it up and see if I can remember how to do it. I have web links, links for more information. Here we go. Yeah, the top link here is Statistical Tolerance Analysis eBook, and it takes you to the Ascendo site where if you're a member of the site, which I hope all of you are, it's free, you can download this, this ebook, which goes into detail, worst case analysis, root sum squared, and um, Monte Carlo, and it goes through this example in much more detail. And so I'm gonna hit some of the highlights of that at the moment. So the basic idea here, let's say we have a very simple um, uh, stack up problem. We have five metal plates that we want to achieve a combined thickness of 125 millimeters plus minus three millimeters. It's what we, in order for this function to work, that's what we need. Um, but we, we know that the individual plates have some variation. And one of the questions we have is, well, what kind of yield are we going to get if we randomly pick uh, plates out and stack them up and, and put it into our product? Uh, or do we need to in, invoke a uh, inspection process so that we get within this range by hand carefully selecting the five plates that make up the stack, uh, which is expensive and time consuming. We'd rather not do that. Is the tolerance of the individual plates good enough that we'll be in this range most of the time? And it's a, a reasonable question. Now, this is an oversimplified because I'm using five identical parts, but it uh, gets the idea across, I hope. Right. So first, we got to come up with a, a transfer function, right? And, and in this example, we're just stacking the five, right? So this should, oops, let me get my drawing tool here, should be pretty simple, right? My stack, I'm going to call it y sub i here, and i representing the, the runs. I take a random sample from number one, and I'm going to, its thickness, right? And I take number two, and so on, out to number number five. And I just add them. 
and that gives me the total thickness. Now remember that I'm going to randomly sample from some distribution. Now it might be normal or flattened like that one or whatever it is. And so for one run, I'm going to take one random sample from here and that goes into this point. And then it's like I'm reaching into the bin and grabbing another part. And it might be this part, bin, and that goes into there and so on. And then that's one run. And then I is the number of runs. And at the end of the day, I have a whole stack of Y sub I's, these sums of stacks, which is virtually building them like we would in the factory and measuring them, right? Um, there's no measurement error here, which is kind of nice because I'm not taking stacks and putting a caliper on it, for example. Right? So there's no measurement error. Um, I never thought of that before. You know, we get, get away with this one a little bit. Now, measurement error might be one of your variables, so you might have to deal with that in some, some way. Let's see, I think I buried my uh, little tab there. So next we're, we're going to say, well, well, what is this plate thickness, right? And ideally, we go out and measure it. We have a bunch of plates and we do some sampling. We make sure we do have a good measurement system that doesn't induce a bunch of measurement error. And we go measure it and we tally it up and go for it. Sometimes you can get it from the vendor and sometimes you just guess, right? You just don't know. And so use a bit of engineering judgment on the technique that was used to create the thickness of what we're doing and use that data until we can get something better. And so it could be a uniform distribution. It could be skewed. It could be bimodal. It could be, it is what it is. One of the beauties of the Monte Carlo process is that you can deal with a wide range of, of inputs. And then we estimate the number of runs. And here is way more details in the um, uh, ebook, um, and it goes through the calculations of this. But essentially, we're saying we want to be this, uh, on the estimate of the standard error of the mean, we want to be within 1%, and we want to have a 95% confidence. So I use that equation that I showed earlier. We run out the numbers, and it turns out we need about, say, 15,000 runs. Now, I'm not up to putting that into Excel, I'm not that patient. So I used R uh, and did that instead, and it runs pretty quick. So, but this is a really trivial example, right? But it gives you a, a, an example that you can follow the calculations for. And so what we do is we have this distribution for the variability of the thicknesses of these components, and we do a random sample. Our norm, um, I think it's an Excel command, maybe I'm thinking of R, allows us to do that pretty easily. And it, it's as if you're truly random sampling parts from a bin, where every component has the uh, probability of being selected that's equal, right? every individual part. And so I select parts, and I might get these variations, and I take the transfer function, add it up and I have my thickness. And then I step and repeat, right? We just do that over and over again 
for the 14, 15,000 runs for this particular problem. And so we, we end up with our set of uh, thicknesses. Now, I didn't actually stack any plates together here. This is the simulation part, which makes it fun, right? And we repeat, record it. And then let's do a histogram. Or let's, in, in this particular example, I think I had normal data for everything. So I would get a normal distribution that was centered at about 125 millimeters and would give me a standard deviation, right? Now, a standard deviation of 0.73 um, is going to just barely meet our plus or minus three millimeters. So we're good. We got some room and a little margin on that. So this particular design is no big threat and we're off and running. Now, if that would have been 1.7 um, millimeters standard deviation, well, then we'd have tails hanging off the edge of our requirements. And we, we would either have to get tighter specifications on our components and, and use a different process to make them, or try some other kind of design in order to make the, the clearance that we're trying to do. And so it allows us to use this data to, to answer some questions. It's really what it's now. Now here's a, a question for you. For those that have attended lots of my webinars, you know that I've talked about tolerance analysis a number of times. I've talked, what has it got to do with reliability? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to talk about this more at a high level here next in this next model. But yeah, physics a failure model when it's tougher. And, and some of our variables are, one, they're hard to measure um, in, unless you're in a lab somewhere or in a, uh, in a university setting. Other times, um, we narrow it down and simplify it in the transfer function. Um, and there's a couple different ways to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, the strength of the part, it's re the, the tolerance analysis is a process where we can create a product that is robust to its set of expected stresses, and including the variability of those inputs, the inputs of those different materials and the different component values and so on. And so the ability to use tolerance analysis is not just for a manufacturing process. It is so that we manufacture it well and consistently such that it's robust to the set of stresses that it's eventually going to see. And that helps us make a reliable product. Barring the input stresses, the, the its use stresses, just making it consistent often helps in the product functioning as expected. If you have a lot of variability in the manufacturing of one component versus the next, the likelihood of one working and one not working under a particular circumstance goes up dramatically. And so it goes into a into that area pretty dramatically. So let me touch on this product life example. So in the physics of failure webinar I did a few months ago, um, I had this equation. It's an electromigration, it's for, and it's commonly called Black's equation. And it has a handful of variables in here and this is just one example of, of what is relatively simple equation, but it gives us a 
specific failure mechanism, and this is only for CMOS technology, and it gives us this, uh, I'm sorry, I, I believe it's only CMOS. It may apply outside of that, and I, the paper I have only really talks about CMOS um, uh, traces uh, on the chip. But this current density is a function of the thickness of that trace, right? The cross-sectional area of that trace and, and how much current we have and so on. And so the, the current can vary, the voltage can vary, the um, material, um, uh, the thick, the cross-sectional area can vary, the, um, I just had another one I was thinking of that, uh, it, or the material itself, the copper or aluminum or whatever we're using could vary. Uh, there could be uh, manufacturing defects like uh, uh, cracks or dis dispersions or burrs or whatever that just changes its cross-sectional area and local areas. Lots and lots of things you could consider as variables for this current density. Now, E sub A, the activation energy, right? If you get really, really close to this particular material, you'll find that different alloys and different processing of those alloys causes the activation energy to change. And it may be in it within a range, not a, a specific value. Now, anybody that's used this activation energy knows that the results are often very sensitive to that value. So if we know that it's over a range and has some distribution of values based on how our product is manufactured or how it's treated, um, we may have different activation energies and different specific components. And so we could use that as a variable. And then temperature is another one. We know that we have variation in temperature. Now this becomes more difficult in some cases because temperature varies, say, in a daily cycle or, or power on versus power off cycle. And either we simplify it and say, here's an average temperature, or we use this in a time function. We say, all right, here's the life of our product out over time. And every hour, it accumulates a certain amount of damage. And so I run this simulation every hour with the temperature at that particular time. So this variation in temperature, I'll plot time here, might be high during active use and then low when it's not used so often. Right? And so the variability of what's possible for temperature variation may have a very deterministic pattern to it, but that's okay. We can use that as an input to the formula for this time slice of where it accumulates some damage and so on. And here the computational power really comes to four if we're doing 10,000 runs, but we're also doing 10,000 calculations because we want to run it for for 10,000 hours, right? So it adds up pretty quickly. But you could do that. You, you could get that sophisticated. First pass, I would pick a current density and say, I know I've got variability there. I might do a range of activation energies to, to describe the range of components I've got uh, material variables on and do an average temperature for its lifetime and run with that. As I get more sophisticated needs from the model, I might add this time element to, to slice it up and accumulate the damage as it goes. 
again, you know, every circumstance will be slightly different in you know, what you need or don't need from the equation. But there's there are ways to solve this a number of different ways. So that's just one model. Now, what happens when you got lots of failure mechanisms, right? This group that I worked with at HP, they had, I think they had 28 named failure mechanisms. And it was really cool. Um, as, a, as an engineer or in, uh, in the team, if you identified a unique failure mechanism for their product, uh, you got to name it. So it was the inkjet uh, print nozzles. And one of the sh failure mechanisms was named OINKS. O-I-N-S, I think. There's a K in there somewhere. Outside in ink shorts. And what it basically was is that the ink, which is relatively corrosive to electronics, would get through a barrier and, and corroded some of the electronics and cause an electrical failure. And so, but it was from an outside element that it got into it. There was also inside ink shorts, but it didn't have as clever a name. So what happened in that regard is they had different, oops, get my pen. They had different transfer functions for each failure mechanism, right? And they had, I think at that time, they had 28 different failure mechanisms that they knew about. Now, some of these were based on field data. Some of these were based on uh, physics of failure modeling of that specific mechanism. Um, one of them I remember was a, um, they used off-axis ink. They had an ink reservoir separate from the nozzle and there was a small tube that delivered the ink to the nozzle. And if air, oxygen in particular, got into the tube, it would form a bubble and it would block it. And one of the mechanisms was is that the oxygen would diffuse through the polymer and accumulate. Now, if you use the product every day, it would flush it out as it got built up and it would never build up enough to cause a failure. But if you didn't use it very often, it had more time to build up a, a bubble that caused a failure. So the, the function was basically, how often does the customer use the product? And so they created a, from the marketing team, they had different, personas essentially of use cases and it would be just a count of how many print jobs they did at various times and then what percentage of people were in each of those groups so they would take a random sample saying all right these people use the product there's very few number of people use the product every day all the time they heavy users right and then that would get put into the function but that same heavy use would also cause other failure mechanisms to cause more wear, for example. And cavitation was another one of their issues. And so it was directly related to time of use. So the heavy user didn't have air accumulation cause a problem, but they did have cavitation problems. And so a different failure mechanism would go. Some of that used the product very, very infrequently um, may have this diffusion problem cause a problem but the cavitation would be fine because it just didn't get excited very often. And so they created these transfer functions for each of these things. And then the algorithm was, is, well, which one wins? Winning here meaning causes a failure. And so then they would record the time to failure of each of these failure mechanisms.
and but they created a, func a function for each mechanism and each mechanism had its own set of variables that fed it temperature fed many of them uh, use conditions how often you use it fed a, a good number of them other material properties fed some of them but if there were all kinds of different distributions uh, both continuous and discrete that fed into these functions and so they had a a a database that was continually evolving of the data of the variables, and they had a set of functions as they discovered failure mechanisms and how to improve those to, to be more accurate. So that's how they dealt with the many failure mechanisms they were facing. It, the variation in use conditions is probably the hardest one. And the only way I've seen it really solved, as I described earlier, is you say, all right, let's take daily averages for those conditions, or let's use you know, something like miles driven, for example, per month or something like that, and then run the simulation every month to accumulate damage. If there's seasonal things, if there's uh, daily diurnal temperature changes, um, those can be deterministic. They're not available, but we can actually monitor those out in simulating the life of our product. And so those are pretty handy. So a couple of different cool things there. And I've mentioned discrete data a couple of times. So I think, yeah, I'm right at my ending here. Let me pull up the, um, not the lobby, I want the conclusion side where the, there we go. Yeah, uh, Justin, yes, there's going to be a playback. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to um, do a little bit of editing, get it up online. It should be available in a day or two. Sometimes it takes me a few more days, depending on what's all going on in the schedule. Is there a freeware for Monte Carlo? Um, you know, I don't know. It's probably worth a search. Um, I know that our software is free, except that it takes time to learn how to use it. Um, so it's, it is free and you can look for Monte Carlo packages in their, in their database and it is a free package, but it has a pretty steep learning curve in general. So it's, uh, if you want to get serious about it, that last example I described, um, originally was built in C++. And I know that like 10 years ago or so, they transferred it over to R. I think they used S, S for a while, then they moved it to R. And uh, has more than enough capability for what they needed to do. Yeah, you know, getting others to believe it, the results, is this where I usually start small. Getting, start with, with something that's pretty obvious and then build onto it to improve the ability of it. Um, I, I find the biggest challenge is the garbage in, garbage out type stuff. If they don't understand where and how you got the data that's feeding the model, um, that's, that can be a, an Achilles heel of the system. But in some cases, a, a educated guess is actually good enough, and that's all you really need. And when you start doing some sensitivity analysis and running more uh, how important is that variable in, in the results we're getting.